Almighty God, we come before you as your church, and together we ask that you would use us for your glory. We ask that you would work in us and through our lives today. Father, we pray today for our brother Vlad and our sister Phoebe as they left Ukraine yesterday and traveled to Poland and travel home. Father, we're so grateful for your kindness in keeping them safe and for the many ways you have used them to encourage others. And so, Father, we pray now that you would keep them safe again on their journey. Father, we pray that members from across our church would welcome them home well. We pray that we would pursue them and hear about their work and encourage them when they return. Father, we pray for the growth of the church in Ukraine. We pray for sister churches like ours who desire to form and to meet under the word of God and yet do that right now in very hard circumstances. Oh God, would you be with our brothers and sisters that we haven't even met? Would you strengthen them in your word today? We pray that you would be with them. Father, we pray today as many of our students return back to school this week, we pray for your protection over our children and our youth this school year. Father, as, as your word teaches us to pray for uh, all those who are in authority, we, we pray for the school teachers and the, the principals and the superintendents of our children's schools. Father, we think of Dustin Boland, superintendent at Lake Worth Christian, or Michael Burke, superintendent over Palm Beach County Schools, or Scott Crawford at Palm Beach Christian, or many others, including parents who are teaching their children. Father, would you use those who are in authority over our, ch our children to, to help our children to grow? Would you give wisdom to them and favor as they lead? Would they lead in a way that would be good for our children and for our community? Father, would you help our children and our parents to not just grow in knowledge, but to grow in their understanding of Christ? Father, we also pray for our church. We pray that we as a church would grow in you. Father, we pray that you would provide for us. We pray that you'd provide for our physical and financial needs. Father, as our budget is low this year, we pray that you would guide our members how to give, not, not under compulsion, but with joy. Father, we pray that you would meet our needs as we as a church want to have a dependent trust on you, we pray that you would provide for us. Father, we now pray for favor as we go to your word again. Would you open our eyes to your truth? Would you give us the, the privilege of seeing what many before us have longed to see? Give us spiritual eyesight, O oh God. Give us the ability to understand your word, that we could serve you as your church. Oh God, that we could worship you, that we could know Jesus Christ. Would you shape us this week, we pray. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Do you want to be used by God? 
would you say that you want God to use you to help build his kingdom? Uh, for any in the room here today that are Christians, uh, th you can just think about this. The, the, the mere fact that that is an option should just amaze us. I mean, just think about your life. I I'm guessing if you're, you're sitting here in this room, that at some time, someone influenced you to push you towards coming to this church building or consider going to church. If you're a Christian, if you believe that what the Bible says is true, the message of Jesus Christ, I'm guessing that at some point, somebody told you about that message, what, what the word says. I think back, who was it for you? Who was the first person that told you about Jesus? wonder if you can just think that in your mind. Even if you learned about Christ first from just reading the Bible itself. I mean, someone had to give you that Bible. Someone had to, to make that Bible. Someone had to translate it to your language. The, the mere fact that God uses people in the lives of others is just amazing. And it's, by the way, it's illustrated throughout Scripture time and time again. God speaks of, of bringing in a harvest, and he uses farmers to go out into his fields to bring it in. He, he speaks of a, God being like a good king who uses soldiers who go out into battle. He speaks of being like a master of a house who's preparing a banquet, and he uses certain dishes, certain utensils that are set aside for, for honorable use for his glory and for his kingdom. It, it, it's a simple and just a profound idea. God uses us, disciples, to make other disciples. A friend and I have been reading together. We've been getting together over lunch and reading a book together. Uh, lately, I've been ordering a sandwich and he's been ordering a salad. Mine comes with a coleslaw, so I try to pass it off, because of course, who would want coleslaw? Um, and, and we share a lunch together, and then we open a book, and right now we're reading uh, The Trellis and the Vine. Uh, and as we're reading through this book that talks about doing ministry in the local church, here's what we recently read. We read, the call to discipleship is the same for all. The Great Commission, in other words, is not just for the 11. It's the basic agenda for all disciples. To be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. So let me ask you again. Do you want to be used by God? The answer for every Christian here should be yes. Well, we're going to think about that today. Today's passage comes again from the book of Luke. We've uh, been out of the book of Luke for a few weeks now. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open now to Luke chapter 10, the passage that Chris just read. We'll be in verses 1 through 24. And the passage is all about how God uses, uh, how Jesus rather, uses a group of ordinary disciples to go and to announce his kingdom. You know, by the way, even as we begin this today, let me just pause and say, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I I'm just so glad and honored that you would choose to come and listen and be part of our service today. I hope you feel welcome here. 
admittedly, I'm going to spend a good part of my sermon today just explaining what the Bible says. And I, honestly, much of it applies to Christians in the room and how we as Christians live and we serve the Lord together. Uh, but honestly, this is not bad for you if, if you're here in that place, because you get to just eavesdrop and just listen in on how Christians think about ministry, what the Bible says about this, and how we understand our job and our place as those who have been saved. I'll talk more about that later, but I hope you feel welcome to, to listen in on kind of this internal conversation to see what we're thinking. If you've brought your Bibles, we're in verses 1 through 24. It's a long passage in front of you. But uh, my prayer is to work through it and that as we do, we'll see that we are sent out in mission and better understand how Christ uses us in his kingdom. So this passage is all about mission. Look at the context in verse 1. There we read, after this, the Lord, so Jesus, uh, appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And so this is here reminiscent of what had happened back in chapter 9, if you remember, with the apostles, that, that special group of the 12 disciples. Uh, but here Jesus seems to be expanding it, to, to not just send the 12, but to send 72 disciples. It's an expectation of how in Acts the, the mission will be expanded to all who are followers of Christ. And so he sends them out two by two to go out announcing his kingdom. And we notice once again that that the Christian mission is never a Lone Ranger mission, that we always go out together in community. Uh, let's look at what he says. How does Jesus send? How does Jesus use these disciples? First, notice Jesus sends expecting dependent trust. Jesus sends expecting dependent trust. I think this is the principle of what we see in this opening section. Let me read it again, even though Chris just read it. So verse 2 and following. He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be on this house, and if the Son of Peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer is deserve, deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. And so out go these missionaries, these messengers of this rabbi, this teacher, Jesus, and they're going out to tell of Jesus's arrival. And do you realize what we just read in that passage? Jesus says to them, there's not enough of you, and you'll be dreadfully vulnerable, and you won't take what you need. You'll have to find it along the way. This is a dependent trust. So look at verse 2. Jesus says, it's like going out into the field to, to, to reap a crop that I have ready, but there aren't enough of you to do the job. Have you ever volunteered for a, a project and found yourself alone? Or, or perhaps at work, uh, you've been given a task to do and realize that you are just severely understaffed. Your, your brain starts to do the math as you're working and you realize, at this rate, I'll never finish. If many hands make for light work, 
Well, you know that few hands make work heavy, don't they? Jesus is saying this little group. Now, albeit it's expanded. It's much more than it was before. It was 12 before. Now we're to 72. But this group is not enough. You're not going to be enough for what I have planned. Then verse 3, this continues this theme of dependent trust. Serving King Jesus is like entering into spiritual warfare, but as the underdog. On your way, Jesus says, you're going to be like baby sheep, lambs, going out into the middle of a pack of wolves. I wonder if you can picture that. Sheep are known for being defenseless. To wolves, sheep are like walking prime ribs, an afternoon snack. And so lambs are the most defenseless of sheep. And wolves are the expert hunters. And so can you picture it? It, it, This is like a a group of gazelles going out into a pride of lions, saying, here we are. This is alarmingly vulnerable. The point is that these young disciples who have been following around this rabbi are not playing games, and they are no match for what they are walking into spiritually. On their own, they have no chance. Uh, They are like we saw last week. They're like those cowering Israelites who have a really good reason to hide in in light of the towering giant in front of them. What kind of shepherd is needed to take care of lambs entering into the middle of a pack of wolves? Verse 4 continues the dependent trust. This time, they wouldn't take their normal provisions. This won't always continue, by the way. Later in Luke Jesus will send out other groups and encourage them to take things with them. But this time, no. This time they will depend on hospitality for where to stay. They will depend on hospitality for where they're to eat. They wouldn't take the normal traveler's bag, which would be just a sign of their independence and their ability to sustain themselves. They wouldn't be like peddlers of the day going from house to house trying to elicit funds. No, they would trust God and what he would provide and look for people that would support their cause. And verse 4 ends emphasizing it's urgent. They're not to greet others on the way. I don't think this is a call to be rude, by the way. I think it's a call to not slow down in the urgency of this unique task. The theme is they are to be dependent. They are in need. Jesus' disciples are to trust him. I think we see this most clearly back up in verse 2. Did you catch it? They are to turn to the Lord in prayer, asking for his help in bringing in the harvest. They're to see their need. They're to see that they aren't enough for what they're doing. They need God's help. And it should cause them to turn to him in prayer. What does this example of dependent trust mean for us? Our time and place is different Obviously, Christ has died, he's resurrected, he's set up his church, but we have been given a mission. Christ sends us out, likewise we see in the New Testament, with expecting the same type of dependent trust on him. Oh, church, if if God would provide for these first missionaries, would he not also provide for us? Would Would he not also provide for you as you go out to witness to who he is? Could he not provide you with boldness to talk to a coworker about Jesus? Winsome boldness. 
If God could protect these lambs among wolves, could he not also protect you among family or friends that are adversarial to the gospel? Do you have any neighbor in your reach that you could turn to? I I mean, I'm just picturing this with just the, the biggest smile possibly on your face turning to a neighbor and saying, I I would just love it if you came with me to church. Jesus has just completely changed my life for the better, and I would love it if you would at least look at what he says. I wonder if, if you could have that dependent trust to say those types of things in your life. Such a bold testimony will need that type of trust, and that's always been true of Christ's disciples from the beginning. Let's read through the next section of what Jesus is sending. Look, look down at verse 8. We, we find there, When you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in ashes and sackcloth. But it will be more bearable in the judgment of Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Verse 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. How does Jesus send out these disciples? Secondly, Jesus expects us to be received and rejected. There seems to be two options going on in this section. Verse 8, they will receive you or they will not. Verse 16, they will hear you or they will reject you. Notice with both groups, The message is the same. Verse 8 and down in verse 11. uh, The the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom. Now the kingdom, as we've said before, is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ among his people. And it's started. It's come. Salvation has arrived. Now, as one commentator has rightly explained, this isn't to say that everything associated with the kingdom has come. But no, it's only just begun. But those who will receive it, they'll be blessed. Look at verse 9. It'll be authenticated in their midst. The, The sick will be healed. To those who have faith to believe this message, the Lord will confirm what is happening. But then in verse 10 and 11, for those who deny the coming of Christ. The messengers were to make an announcement publicly that the town would be left behind. Like the dust coming off of your shoes, just left behind. And so the result is, verse 12, if they have the chance to accept Christ's reign and they pass it by, for those who hear Christ's reign and don't believe it by faith. It'll be worse for them than for the famously evil city of Sodom. To have the chance to follow Jesus Christ and to turn him down is the ultimate offense. This is more offensive. The more you hear about Christ and the more you still say, I don't believe, 
I, I don't believe in this creator. I, I, this isn't true. This just offends God even more. So imagine, if you will, that you're there. <laughs> imagine Jesus is picking you out from the crowd to go out as one of his disciples. <laughs> How incredible is this? Jesus tells his disciples, you go out now, and you're going to be rejected. So go. See you later. That's what he's doing. In this text, he's spending more time preparing his disciples for, the reject for their rejection than for their success. He's warning them that this faith in his rule and reign will not be popular. And by the way, this is the same pattern that we see across the Old Testament. Prophet after prophet was sent by God. And you know what happens. Prophet after prophet was rejected for their message, calling people to look to Christ. Oh, beloved, would we expect anything less for us? So I ask you, do, do you want to be used by God? Do you want to be used for his kingdom? Well, expect rejection. Prepare to be rejected. If you're a Christian today, I mean, just consider the foolishness in the eyes of the world of what you believe. You claim, if you're here as a Christian, you claim to worship a God that you cannot see, who sent his son that you have never witnessed personally with your physical eyes, who lived as a, a homeless teacher, and he was rejected by the, the wise men of his day, and then died as a criminal in shame on a cross. That's what you believe. This is foolish in human eyes. Prepare to be rejected. It takes faith to believe this message. Uh, it, just as it took faith for these who heard these messengers come out and tell others that the Messiah had come, the kingdom was started. Even today, it takes faith to believe that what God's word says is actually true. Now, I'm not undervaluing the, the, the role of reason in our faith, by the way. I think God has given us a reasonable faith. He's given us a faith with, with plenty of evidence. But, but through worldly eyes, it is foolishness, as we'll see in just a few minutes. So Jesus prepares his disciples to be rejected. You know, I, I just think about my own life. I, I spent with my wife, Jamie, 11 and a half years uh, living in the Middle East, uh, working to help plant churches there in, in very spiritually hard places. And we share the gospel like more times than we could count uh, with, with whomever we could for years. I mean, in taxis, on the street, in our home, in shops, in other people's homes, every opportunity we could. And now, in 11 and a half years, we did see marvelous things happen. God was gracious to us. We got to disciple believers in persecution. Uh, we saw Christians grow in their faith. In the wider circles we worked with, we probably saw a dozen people come to faith. But, but through our testimony, through our words, we personally saw one person come to faith. Eleven and a half years. One person. Now, I, I can praise God that he used that as a crucible in our lives to forge confidence in us, not in the reception of man, but in our faith in what God's word actually says. And oh, how sweet that brother was who came to faith. 
just, just seeing that just worked like uh, solidifying bedrock <laughs> in my faith to say this is so true. Beloved, do you want to be used by God? Are you ready for rejection? So let me ask you, do you only share the gospel when you think it will be heard and received? Do you only invite other people to church that you calculate will say yes? Do you wait for the perfect moment to talk about Jesus to ensure that you won't be turned down because you think you can guess what the response will be? Do you, thinking about discipling, do you wait to invest spiritually in the lives of others until it's comfortable for you, never taking a risk to pursue someone for their spiritual good. When we fear rejection more than we fear God, we have forgotten who is sending us. Let me say that again. When we fear rejection more than we fear God, we have forgotten who is sending us. Look at verse 16. This is the point. Verse 16 says, The one who hears you hears who? Me. Let me try that again. The one who hears you hears who? Good job. You guys are getting better. The one who rejects you rejects who? Even better yet. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The point is that these disciples were representatives of Christ. They didn't represent themselves. Oh, friends, when you are silent with your neighbor, or when you idolize your comfort over lovingly speaking the truth, or when you avoid speaking with your coworkers or family about Christ and how good he really is, and you are forgetting that you aren't representing yourself. You are forgetting who has sent you. I promise you, I, I, I absolutely promise you, based on the promises of God's word, that 1,000 years from now, or 10,000 years from now, or 100,000 years from now, the opinions of your neighbors and friends will not matter to you. But the estimation of your heavenly father will be immeasurably more important. So I'm not saying here to be awkward. I, it, Jesus, we're told to go out and season our speech with salt. To speak in love. Speak li and listen winsomely. But still speak. Jesus expects rejection. You'll then notice in verses 13 and 15, by the way, this warning of rejection connects to Jesus' judgment of three other cities that have rejected him. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. He says, woe to these cities. These cities were within Israel and apparently had heard Jesus' message or would hear it through these disciples. And these cities had been given true signs of the kingdom. And so their, the expectation on them was real. The standard was high. Jesus says that they didn't repent. So he hypothetically compares them to Tyre and Sidon, two other Gentile cities. And Jesus imagines that if those very lost cities had seen his miracles, that even in their lostness, they would have repented. 
the cities that Jesus had gone to, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, had been given true signs of the kingdom. Because they heard and didn't turn from their sin, their judgment would be more severe. Here's the idea. The message of Christ demands a response. You can't hear the message of Christ and walk away without a response. You will either accept it or reject it. Rejection is worse when the evidence lies in front of you. Uh, Friends who might be here today, again, those who might not be Christians or still thinking about this and still trying to think carefully about what you believe about this world and the things of this world, I, I think this portion is especially applicable. You see, this message is saying that it matters that we listen to what God says. That the announcement of his kingdom is not optional. And wouldn't that be true? If it is true what we're saying, if there is a God who has created this world, which is what Christians believe, and we are told to obey him, and if it is true that we have not obeyed him, but we have done what's wrong, each of us in our own ways, lived for ourselves, not obeyed his holy law, then wouldn't it be an offense to this creator to just keep doing that, even when he's offered us a way to be reconciled? The the good news of the gospel, what we here base our very church around, is the fact that even though that's true, that God did something to help us in that place. That he sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came and lived this perfect life. He, he lived life that none of us could live in perfection before him, before God Almighty. And then he died. He was the only one in history who didn't deserve the penalty of death. And yet he took it. And he took death and the wrath of God, the punishment of God on him when he died on the cross. And he was buried, and then historically it's undeniable. He rose from the grave. And in rising from the grave, he defeated death and sin, so that now he just freely offers us salvation. He says, anyone who will believe in me, trust in me, look to me in faith, I will just cancel the debt of your sin. I'll just take it away. He offers this to all of us. This is the message of the gospel. Oh, I pray that you would consider this today. I pray that you would think about what this means for you today. Jesus says, for those who hear and reject, this is a serious thing before God Almighty. We should keep moving. Let me move now to the next section. Uh, This group of disciples went out. They were dependent, trusting on Christ. They were warned of rejection. And then look at verse 17, rather. Look, they returned. They, They came back from this trip. Verse 17 says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They're surprised that Jesus' authority over the entire spiritual world extended to them when they went out in his name. Imagine that they went out telling others about this rabbi and the kingdom. And in the process, they discovered that even the demons are listening to them because of who they're representing. Well, they're surprised, but, but Jesus isn't. Verse 18, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
And behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And so, on their own, these disciples are like lambs in the middle of wolves. They're worse than defenseless. But with the authority of Christ, Jesus, the snake crusher who had been promised, they're treading on serpents. They're crushing the enemy. Nothing will hurt them. Some of you might be wondering, by the way, what Jesus meant in verse 18. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I think two things. This could refer to Jesus referring to time past, thinking back of how Satan sinned against God and fell in an instant. If this is the case, it's like Jesus is saying, I've already seen it. Satan has been doomed all along. Or this could be Jesus having some vision of seeing Satan's spiritual defeat as the kingdom is being ushered in. Regardless of the details, I think the point is the same. The arrival of the kingdom means defeat for Satan. As one person put it, this is D-Day. The greater force for evil against evil for good has arrived. There's no going back now. In the imagery of C.S. Lewis, Aslan has landed. And, and winter is thawing. The queen's spell is just losing its hold. Friends, this is incredible. Catch just the magnitude of this moment. Jesus is coming, and he's coming with power to reverse the problem of sin and death in this world. What an immense success. How incredible is this? that they could be personally sent by Christ and, and seen as authority. They get to visibly display this. And yet, did you catch what happens? Jesus pivots with the, the disciples just reveling in this. They're reveling in the re realization of all that they could do. Jesus shifts their attention. He says, don't think about that. Don't, don't get excited about that. Do you want to be used by Jesus? Know this, number three. Jesus treasures eternal security over earthly ministry. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. What do you mean, Jesus? Don't rejoice in this moment of D-Day for your kingdom. We get to be on the front lines and we're winning. He continues, don't rejoice in this, that the subjects are, that the spirits are subject to you. Not rejoice over this profound power, this visible success in ministry, in being used by God in supernatural ways. Friends, there is a glory that exceeds the glory of being used by God. It is the glory of being secure in Christ. Verse 20, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here, Jesus is talking about what Isaiah and Daniel had foretold, what Philippians and Hebrews will reference, what Revelation will predict in the future, and what we as a congregation prayed about during our prayer praise. He is talking about the book of life. God's account of all those who are eternally his, who are known by God, 
and accounted for as his people. This is God's true and perfect membership directory. And is all for all those whom Jesus has died. All those who are secure, having believed in the gospel. All those who are united to Christ eternally and will never be let go. Friends, if you are here today and you are a believer in Christ, God's word is clear. This miracle has happened for you. Your name is written in the book of life. Oh, rejoice. Be glad. Not, not in the amazing things you get to do in ministry. I mean, who here has, has done what they did? Who, who, who has had this type of ministry over the, the powers of darkness on the cutting end of the kingdom? Jesus says, not in what you do, not in what your ministry accomplishes. Rejoice in being eternally secure in Christ. So elders, your identity as an elder in this church is not wrapped up in your eldership, fundamentally. Deacons, or future deacons, your ultimate joy is not serving in that role. Worship team, children's volunteers, youth workers, kitchen workers, greeters, sound team, disciples, mothers, fathers, parents, grandparents, whatever you are doing to serve our Lord, let me affirm you in it, regardless of the glory of that role, it should never eclipse the joy of being known by God and eternally his. If you do this, it will rightly orient your whole life. Let me just give four quick benefits. I'll be brief here for time. If you treasure your place with Christ above the ministry that you do, even if it's good ministry, number one, you can better let go of your ministry. When it's time to leave, you won't be wrapped up in what you do. Uh, number two, you can better assess where to serve because friends and pastors can speak into your life based on your gifts and the need, not based on your identity. Number three, if you, if you understand this, you can better handle rejection because uh, you know that that's not where your acceptance is found. I think the disciples needed this. Number four, you can better prepare for eternity. You will not be spending eternity reveling in what a great job you did. But in Christ, and the great job that he did for you, that your name gets to be written in his book. Jesus points our focus to the future here. So do you want to be used by God? Don't prioritize being used by God. It's the paradox of the Christian life. Those who are more enamored with the glory of their salvation are inevitably more useful. One way we can apply this today is by singing loudly at the, at the conclusion of our service. In just a few minutes, we're going to sing, It is well with my soul. We'll obey Christ together. We will rejoice together, saying, Our souls are set. We are fine. We are in Christ. We are in his book. He's accepted us in, and it does not depend on how good I perform. 
Jesus says rejoice in that. Let me end with a final point in this final section. Listen to starting in verse 21. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Father, who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then turning the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus ups the ante. Do you want to be used by Christ? These, these disciples were not used because of their intellect or their wisdom or their understanding. Now, how does Christ send his, his disciples? Number four, Jesus opens their eyes to truth, and specifically, an intimate truth of him. The disciples go on this mission trip and come back, and it leads Jesus to rejoice. He has been telling them, rejoice in your eternal future. It's secure. They shouldn't rejoice in what they did. And, and here... Jesus turns and he rejoices, and he's also not rejoicing in what they did. Jesus breaks into prayer, and he starts thanking God that the knowledge of God is not revealed to us based on our wisdom or our understanding. You don't need a university degree to understand Christ. You don't need to go to seminary to know who Christ is. No, you come to Christ with the simple trust of a child. And Jesus rejoices in the, the inner workings of the Trinity. He rejoices that God the Father has given authority to the Son, and only the Father and the Son know each other in this intimate way, and, verse 22, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He ups the ante. Not only are you eternally secure in Christ, not only are you his forever, whatever, whatever happens in this world, you're in his book of life. But you get to know God. As one pastor remarked this way, some religions offer paradise. Other religions offer nirvana. Only in Christianity, only in the gospel, does God offer you himself. Friends, isn't this what we want after all? To see and know God? To, to know the one that we were created for? What, what a privilege this is. Jesus explains further, privately to his disciples, verse 23. If, if you can see Jesus as God, if you can see his, his coming rule in his kingdom, you're hearing and seeing things which prophets and kings of old longed for. Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, King David, King Solomon in all his wisdom, all hearing and waiting for this coming Messiah, waiting to see with their, the spiritual eyes of their heart this God. And so church, as we close, as we head into this week, 
Do you want to be used by God? Oh, it's a good desire. Christ is still sending out his messengers to announce his good reign. The harvest is still plentiful. The workers are still few. It's a good thing to be sent by King Jesus. But beloved, Christ gives us a greater joy that changes the way we go out. And that is in knowing him and being known by him. Let this be your joy this week. See your name written in heaven. Savor the fact that you see what the prophets longed to see. Stand amazed, just amazed, that the God of the universe, the one who created you, has shown you his son and has invited him, you to commune with him. Open your Bible this week and commune with the son. Let that fill you with joy this week as you commune with Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you for your kindness to us to show us Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you for the privilege to serve and to be used by you to go out and to proclaim that the rule and reign of Christ is here that we are called to live in a world by faith, trusting in you, the creator, through your word. Oh God, as we do this, as we are faithful this week, help us to know Christ. Open the eyes of our hearts. May we rejoice in being known by Christ. May we rejoice in being able to sing that is in, indeed well with our souls.